Okay. I can get this, Earl. Let's go ahead and um, open with prayer and then kind of decide which direction we want to go tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you for being with us through the day. I thank you for enabling us to be here tonight. And I pray again that there will be just enlightenment as we've seen your hand all down through history. And not just with us, but Lord, you've been faithful forever and ever. And all the generations that you protected and enlightened, took care of, gave grace to. And we just pray that you would be with us tonight in our lesson. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, If we kind of divided things up... um, We've, we have what's called the apostolic age, which is roughly to um, 100 A.D. Now, um, that's one way to divide things up. Um, the first section, sometimes the first age, if you want to call it, um, many cases goes to um, 70 A.D., the destruction of Jerusalem, and the shift away from Jerusalem as the center for the church and from a, it being a Jewish Christian church to mostly Gentile, especially by, you, by the time you get to about uh, 100. Now, I've mentioned before, don't want to you know, just belabor it, but much of the early writings, not only biblical, New Testament, but the early creeds, were responses to false doctrines. Um, I, over the years, reading enough history, um, and especially church history, you you, you got to believe me, okay? Um, for one thing, let me throw in a quote from John or from Martin Luther. He said, "Proof, proof that the tr- that the church is of divine origin." is that the preachers, if it wasn't, the preachers would have killed it a long time ago. Um, The church was just besieged on every side. False teachings, false doctrines, um, loose organization, people going off on their own. It's really hard to describe how in a sense, just chaotic everything was. And we talk much, and it's fine as we study history, about the, the early leaders of the church, the apostles, of course, and then after they died, they passed it off to another set of great men who are called the early church fathers and who maintained, for the most part, um, the doctrinal emphasis and stuck to the truth. But... It is an outstanding testimony to the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I won't leave you orphans when I leave. I will send you another comforter. 
And he will remind you of what I said. He'll lead you unto all truth and so forth. Um, the Holy Spirit and his sovereign superintendence over the church is the only explanation for why we are gathered here today and we are able to confess to and experience what we would call orthodox Christianity. It is the same thing the apostles taught. Um, because there's, a, there's an old phrase, um, a lot of people use it in the 1900s, um, we need to, it's back to the Bible. There was even radio programs, back to the Bible. Um, the, the meaning is that we need to get back to the first century, um, maybe the second century, the early church days. Um, I'm not so sure I'd like to go back to those days if I were given the choice. Um, things were really, um, it was sort of the Wild West in religion, okay? <clears throat> um, I think tonight then, I've got two things I doubt I've got time to get them all done. I wanted to talk to you about the, the high, um, high intensity persecutions that the church endured. There were off and on always persecution somewhere. But there were some especially rugged times under certain Roman emperors. We'll look at that, but before we do that, so it could mean we don't get to that, um, but before we get to it, I want to talk about a lot of the early false teachings that, that sprang up. And then I've given you this handout, which is sort of an evolution of the Apostles' Creed. The top one is, both the top one and the middle one are referred to as, quote, the old Roman creed. Um, thought that it came from the bishop of Rome or the church in Rome. And um, this isn't original, meaning they just compiled and from Scripture and, of course, those who... Um, were still living who would have heard the, an apostle possibly, um, um, came up with these statements of faith. Now the first one is more of an interrogation. It is asking you, the original one, um, they, historians say, was just three questions. Do you believe in the Father? Do you believe in the Son? Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? And if you answered positively, then you were then you answered the right questions to be baptized. Okay, um, so it was a baptismal formula, if you want to call it that. It, of course, like everything, um, simple, straightforward doesn't always last, because some some deceivers always got an angle, and they're always redefining terms. And they're, they're, you know, they're like Bill Clinton. It depends on what it is, okay? Um, and so you continually have to kind of rearrange your defenses against false doctrines. So um, the middle copy here 
is a real early, possibly somewhere, and again, nobody knows for sure, but somewhere around um, 150, as early as 150 A.D., is some of the very first evidence of this, what they then called the Old Roman Creed. The Apostles' Creed, which is down at the bottom, um, is the final form, I guess you'd say. Yeah. Oh, the, of the, uh, it should be, you know, you should have memorized it. <clears throat> you know what I mean? Repeat it daily. Um, anyway, this traditional version, we call it, this is kind of its final form, wasn't completed until almost 700 A.D. So there was lots of little editing and tinkering and, and, and almost every single one of them, uh, one of the phrases here, has a reason behind it that they said it. And it has some uh, heresy that they're targeting. We'll, we'll look at that here in a bit. Um, so we'll put the persecution um, history off for just a bit, and then we will look here at um, some of the very first um, heresies that came up. Now, we all, we've already talked about Gnosticism, which was a major... Um, threat to the church, um, and then there are a couple. There are a couple that kind of came on the heels of Gnosticism, and we don't want to spend um, too much time. But there's another one that's called um, Docetism. Okay, now some of these you don't have to memorize and be able to, you know, repeat from memory. Um, it's D O C E T I S M. Um, and let me back up for a second and say. The vast majority of false doctrines were centered around the Trinity um, and Christology. Who is Jesus? How is it that he is fully, truly man, fully, truly God? Or, or is he? That was the question. And then, here's, here's one they got down in the weeds on, but it matters. Does he have two natures? A human nature? If he's going to be fully human, does he have a fully human nature? And if he's divine, does he have a fully, hum or fully divine nature? And does he have a human will and a divine will? We have one. But for him to be fully God and fully man, did he need to have two natures and two wills? The answer ended up yes. But it took about 400 years to get there. Um... Lots of wrangling around, and a lot of it can seem sometimes to be like, um, oh, during the medieval days, they would say that the monks sat around debating how many angels could dance on the head of a pin, as if these kind of questions are, nah, you fool with that. Um, these were major issues. It would end up uh, determining what kind of a savior we preached and believed in and trusted for salvation. So uh, this uh, docetism is just the teaching that Jesus is fully divine, but not human. The word 
comes from docetism comes from a word that means to seem. It seemed like he had a physical body. And you can see the connection here to old Gnosticism, that he was a phantom. He was in appearance. But what do we have then? That he's not fully human. He can't fully identify with us. He didn't get sick, get hungry, get sick. Um, he needs sleep. Um, he can't be tempted in all points like as we are because he wasn't human, wasn't fully flesh. Um, it, it guts the doctrine of a savior who is an adequate high priest for us. Um, and the, the idea of docetism is in other heresies, but that particular thing teaches that he was fully divine, but he was not fully human. Okay. Um, a second one, um, we'll take just a bit more time on this, was um, called Marcionism, and Marcion uh, was this guy's name. Uh, M-A-R-C-I-O-N uh, was his name, Marcion. Marcionism started in about 140 or something around there, A.D. So this is, you're, you're talking just 40 years after the last um, apostle, likely John, died. Um, and already you've got, you got guys teaching crazy stuff. Uh, this man was um, from a fairly well-to-do family um, and in Asia Minor someplace. And his father was a bishop, Christian bishop. I don't know what happened to his son, but at any rate, um, he began a much more involved kind of heresy, but it had bits of old Judaism in it, it had bits of Gnosticism in it, but it, it basically Marcionism has two gods. Um, the God of the Old Testament, um, who is mean and uh, harsh and basically not good. And then you have a God of the New Testament who is a God of compassion and love and forgiveness and so forth. Now, we might look at that and say, well, I never heard of Marcionism. It was never called that. And I, I'm not going to say that the um, heresy is alive today with us. Okay, But there's a lot of people that have some of that kind of thinking. The God of the Old Testament was just, you know, just smiting people here and there and everywhere else and just bodies all over the place. And then Jesus came along and he was just really, really nice. Um, it's, it's false. Um, but you can see remnants of that still today. Um, that's underlying why so many people are just dismissive of the Old Testament. And often, I've, you know, I've been in, I don't know that I call them arguments, but discussions and sometimes arguments over theology in all of my years in the ministry. And I, I can't tell you the number of times you can say, well, what about such and such? Well, that's the Old Testament. As if with, those, with one sentence, we just... Well, that's kind of what Marcion taught. And he taught that in the New Testament. Really, the only decent writer in the New Testament was Paul. 
And now you say, well, how can he say that? How can he say that there was a bad God in the Old Testament and a nice one in the New and point to Paul as being the greatest writer because Paul spends all of his time talking about Old Testament fulfillment. Well, that was, um, to put it in modern terms, we, what his excuse was, he was hacked. <laughs> yeah, he was hacked. What he wrote, somebody else messed it up. Um, but Marcion then taught that the God of the Old Testament, of course, he totally denied the Trinity. And you have Jesus then, um, almost contradictory to whoever this Old Testament God is. And it's just an absolute mess, okay? But it really was a severe, um, he didn't start a school as a lot of the heretics would start a school and teach people. He started churches. And there were Marcionites, and Marcion, uh, the Marcionite church was around, I think, until the 500s. So, it, and it was a serious um, problem to them. Um, he was thrown out of the church um, by the Bishop of Rome in like 155 or something. So, he didn't go too long um, with, and if I remember right, um, he originally came, he originally studied and, and went into the ministry in Alexandria, uh, Egypt. Well, his, um, one of his um, friends or whoever he had um, were, was Athanasius. Um, and he reported to his bishop what he was preaching and teaching and what he was thinking as he read scripture and as he outlined this new theory. And so they ratted him out um, to um, the officials that be and they excommunicated him. Um, that didn't shut him up. He continued to teach um, through a lot of the, of the 100s. Okay. Um, <clears throat> now, after, and, and I want to keep uh, I'll remind you of these. I know you're sitting in the edge of your seats over it. Um, as we look at the final statement of the Apostles' Creed, because these guys are people that are being shot at in the Apostles' Creed. Um, the, third, the third doctrine, or third kind of heresy, um, and this was... Um, Let's see, this was in, well, the late second century, um, and this guy's name, the, the heresy is called Montanism, M-O-N-T-A-N, um, Montanists, um, and this guy was a reformer. Already by a hundred and some years after the last apostle died, nearly that, there was corruption creeping into the church. There were heresies. There were lax uh, morals. Things were going on. And so, like often, people rose up and said, hey, we're, we're loosening up here. We've got to tighten things up. Well, Montanus um, claimed that he, was, um, he had the gift, well, he had been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, 
he had the gift of prophecy, the gift of revelation, um, and so there was a subtle movement here on his part that the canon, the New Testament, wasn't finished, meaning he was receiving new revelations, and people were obligated to hear them, to listen to them. Okay? And he had two women that hung around with him who were also prophetesses. Okay? It was a bit of a scandal, um, you know, because it was just, they, they were also prophetesses. And, um, you know, I, no one knows for sure if there was, you know, anything going on. But at any rate, it just didn't have a very good appearance to it. But also, um, their whole, their whole uh, M.O. was to make these pronouncements and then demand that people, um, this was the truth of God that we have brought to you and you have to listen to it or you're, I guess you go to hell. Um, so that caused a lot of stir. And as a result of some of this, there, it caused some discussions about, well, maybe we are kind of losing up a little bit. And so there were some ebb and flow um, as far as tightening up. He was kind of, you know, honestly, you could probably say it was kind of like he was an evangelist, a revivalist. Um, not, not saying anything comparatively here about doctrine or whatever, but, uh, or, or his kind of arrogance. But he would have been the Billy Graham of the 200s, okay? Um, and so he, he, he had quite a following. A lot of stir, um, but um, it, it ended up really not going anywhere. Like a lot of those kind of emotional, um, they fizzle out. Um, there's nothing good and solid meat. Um, they usually don't write a doctrine. And they just, um, when you make emotion and emotional experiences kind of your guide, you're going to be all over the place. Um, now, I don't know if I ought to get into this one. This Well, it's pretty short. Um, there's one that goes by about three names. <clears throat> Monarchianism, monarch. Um, modalism um, and Sabellianism. Okay, um, basically, all this was another uh, fouled-up doctrine of the Trinity. It taught that God the Father was like a monarch. There is no three persons, um, and the 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 other title for it is modalism. It it just means that God is one. There is no Trinity, and God for a period of Earth's history, showed himself as the Father, then he revealed himself as the Son, and then he revealed himself as the Holy Spirit. Okay? But it's only one, there, there aren't three persons. So there was, a, there was a Trinitarianism and Christological doctrines were the two things that were always under fire, and the Christological doctrines where they put emphasis on his humanity and not on his divinity or the other way around. And Trinity, it was emphasis on the oneness or on the threeness. Okay? Some went to really uh, tripartite, it's called, three gods, making so much of the individual persons and losing the unity. So anyway, um, the modalists then 
also had not only they rejected the Trinity, which got them thrown out, um, but they also had these this teaching that it's kind of like. Um, well, I don't know how good of an illustration this is, but um, here sometime, well, anybody that's ever gone online and shopped for shoes, okay, you're going to have umpteen different views of that shoe from the top looking down, from the front, from the back, from the side. That's it, But it's just one shoe. Well, that's what modalism was. There's just one God, the Father, but God, but he put himself in different poses so that down through history we would see different sides of him, but, but there is no Son and there is no Holy Spirit as separate, um, co-equal, co-eternal persons. Okay? Now, maybe um, we can quit there and go look at... Um, Try to go look at <clears throat> probably the traditional version here of the Apostles' Creed. Um, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Now, Marcion, um, he taught that this God was not the Father Almighty. He did make heaven and earth. But he was like a Greek god that was more of a, I guess you'd say he put it together, but he didn't create it. Um, and so there's an, an effort here to make sure that the God, who is also the Father Almighty, is also the maker of heaven and earth. Okay? Then... Um, Probably the second thing um, is with the word, the third line, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, the word his. There's the point that this, this Jesus, who is his only begotten son, is his. Now, Marcion again taught that Jesus was radically different than this, well, it's called a demiurge, a Greek term for this God who had the clay or whatever and made, made the earth, okay? Um, denied that this Jesus could have anything to do with that God of the Old Testament who was a harsh, hard, evil God, really, a, a vengeful kind of a God because he came and brought kindness, compassion, and so forth, Okay? So the, the Apostles' Creed shoots at that and says, no, Jesus was the only begotten Son of that Father who created heaven and earth and who is the Lord Almighty that Marcion also said no longer upheld the world. He made it, and I guess Jesus upheld it or somebody did, um, but this takes, you know, a shot at the teachings um, that were spread around. In Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, 
conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Um, one of the key words here is born. That it was a physical birth because Marcion also denied the humanity of Jesus. So, this creed takes the position um, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, then the suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried, is a, that he was a historical person, not just a spirit, but a real being who is in history, recorded in history, was really here, not just like docetism taught. He seemed to be a being we could see. He was really here. Okay? <clears throat> third day, he rose from the dead, crucified, dead, and buried. The third day, he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, or the living and the dead. Um, probably two things here. Um, <clears throat> it contradicts, this contradicts Marcion's um, doctrine that the Father, the God of the Old Testament, was the mean judge and Jesus was the forgiving, compassionate Savior because it makes clear that this Son is coming to judge. He's the judge, not this Old Testament God who's been set aside now. <clears throat> not much said, you know, describing here yet. You have to get to a couple of other creeds about the Holy Spirit. Um, <clears throat> but... The mention of the Holy Spirit and then also the resurrection of the body. This is another thing that Gnosticism and Marcion denied. Because um, flesh is bad. Flesh is evil. So there is, no, there is going to be no resurrection. Jesus couldn't have had a, a real body. And only our spirits can commune with God. But physically we're... The we're the embodiment of evil. Okay? Now really what that goes to is it mislocates sin. Sin is not in the physical body. Jesus said, from within, out of the heart comes all kinds of evil. Murder. Hatred, all kinds of sexual immorality, thievery. You know, there's a bad list that he lays out. It doesn't come out of biology. It doesn't come out of psychology, though those things will be affected by it and can affect it, its, its expression. But the lo location of sin is in the heart. So, this again is a, a shot at the doctrine that sin resides in the flesh. Therefore, as long as we are still in this physical body, we cannot be pleasing to God because we will always be sin ridden. 
okay? Um, that is one idea there of these early heresies that is not only alive, and it's more than well, it's flourishing, okay? Um, you know, and I understand we can misuse the word perfect, but the bunker, you know, the bumper sticker, I'm not perfect, just forgiven. Or, you know, I'm not, because I'm human. Um, I was reading through just the other day and reading through in a couple different versions. First John, five chapters. And I, I just, I, I know that First John 5 has to be rightly divided, you know, like Paul told Timothy, study so that you can rightly divide the word of truth, explain it. Clearly, John speaks of different, if you want to call it, different kinds of sin. There's the sin, he said, which does not lead to death. And there's a sin that leads to death. If you commit the one, the death is a separation from God. The other, he said, if you see your brother commit a sin which is not unto death, intercede for him to the Father. Pray for him. And it says he will give him life. In other words, won't hold it against him or make it some kind of rupture in fellowship. But it says, he said, if you see your brother sin a sin which is unto death, I don't say that you should pray for that. Now, it doesn't mean don't pray for him, but intercessory prayer on his behalf that it be blotted out because it's unwitting or sin of ignorance like in Leviticus, the whole sacrificial system for it. It is, it's a di there is a difference we have to recognize that God makes in what he defines as sin. Blurring that creates endless havoc. We, we make God, and I never try to say this if, if the sheriff's in here, and don't tell him I said this, um, Mrs. Matheny, um, God's not like a traffic cop. And we don't have anybody in our town like that, none of our law enforcement. But what I mean by it doesn't matter if you just got, you know, you got a phone on your on your hands off calling that your entire family was wiped out in a tornado and whatever. You didn't come to a full stop at that stoplight and you're getting a ticket. God's not like that. He deeply, carefully, and being omniscient, he knows my intention, my motive. The word of God, he said, is sharper than any two-edged sword, discerning the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So that there is a difference between willful, deliberate, knowing disobedience to God's will versus either not being fully aware of his law or involuntarily falling short of it. Thankfully, God sees a difference. I had a, I had a pastor who, um, when I was a superintendent back in Indiana, he was over in Ohio, Pennsylvania, had a grain 
truck business, backed up one of those big grain trucks over his two-year-old boy. What are, we, what are you doing? Lock him up. Killed the boy. What? Even wicked pagans like we have who write down our laws got from God's law motive matters hugely. There's grief. There's, there's why? They'd have lynched the sheriff if you had treated him like that. Is God no better? God knows our motives. There's some. So we get to James. To him that knows to do good and will not do it. To him it's sin. That's a pretty good definition of the kind of sin that will get you in trouble. Okay? But we cannot blur that distinction. Now, this is what... um, a lot of people then and even to this day still do. Blur that distinction completely so that then no one, everybody sins every day. And, and I even read a guy, I, he's in heaven now, even though he was fouled up. Um, I think God had him off in a foyer and kind of talked to him for a little bit before he let him loose. Um, but he had it calculated. And I'll tell you who he is. He's a good guy, I think. I think he's passed away. D. James Kennedy. Anybody heard of James Kennedy? He had it calculated out in an evangelism book we took and had to read in seminary. That he figured, I can't remember how he got to it. I think he figured out that somehow in an hour or something, you commit roughly 3,000 sins. So if you're up 12 hours... Whatever that comes out to, that's about how many sins you're going to commit every day, because we sin and work on day every single day. And I, I, I was reading just a couple three days ago those five chapters, and I just I, I kept reading. We know that whoever's born of God does not keep on sinning. Over and over and over. Now, was he talking about? It? He makes no mistakes. No. He doesn't willfully, knowingly disobey God's will for it that he conveys to his heart. Um, that We have to make that distinction. These guys didn't and made um, flesh the source. Yeah. I would just say that Hebrews, you know, if we deliberately keep on yeah. sinning, yeah. receive the knowledge of the truth, yeah. no sacrifice is left, fearful expectation of wrath and judgment. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now, um, I think the last, maybe that's it, that's good enough for um, some, of, some of these um, Montanism, um, this final heresy. I might, now I'll save that one. There's, there's another couple um, that are kind of crazy, but th- these kinds of, of serious doctrinal errors were just like volleys shot into the Christian camp almost every time they turned around. 
Now, I've already mentioned um, the last couple of weeks, all of that chaos, if you want to call it that, and the turmoil, and the uh, epistles going back and forth, and doctrinal treatises going back and forth, um, forced them to have a better organization, forced them to decide once for all what belongs in the New Testament and what doesn't. Which are the books we ought to um, consider inspired? Um, and then the association with the apostles, which is called apostolic succession. Um, and there was a desperate need for well, you know what? It's kind of like a lot of other things we do. It's almost like the the when after the Revolutionary War, it took a while for a central government to get formed, figure out a constitution. You know, the fighting was over in 1783. Um, it wasn't until 1787 they even met to write up the constitution. Um, they had the Whiskey Rebellion because after they got rid of the king and his taxes, they figured out, you know, we got to tax something. So they taxed whiskey. And George Washington had to put down the revolt because you got to have order. And so in the early church, Judah, you know, Judaism was gone. And, of course, Rome couldn't care less, and they were pagan. And so all of a sudden, you, you see almost these orphan Christians, who's going to lead them? Well, the Holy Spirit wasn't short of ideas on how to take care of it. Um, but they had to have an organized body of doctrine and teachings that they could trust and go to, um, a way to have leadership, and a way to settle these kinds of issues. Um, and you start early. In fact, the first one is in the book of Acts. But you're the first... Uh, Great Church Council in Acts 15, and then they start happening down down through the um, down through the centuries. Now, um, any thoughts? Brilliant statements, questions. So far, all this is so perfectly clear. You you have monarchianism, docetism, Marcionism, um, Montanism. Sometimes they lasted. Um, there was one called. <clears throat> there's one called. I think it is. Um, I got. There's so many isms. I got to be careful here. Um, well, there's one called Ebionism, which I'm not going to go into immediately. But this was the belief that Jesus lived a perfect law, perfect life according to the Jewish law. And therefore, God made him the Messiah because he merited by keeping the Jewish law. So this was still, still when there was a pretty good um, segment of Jew, Jewishness in the Christian church. And it's called Ebionites, the Ebionites, uh, E-B-I-O-N-I-T-E-S, okay? Um, some of those lasted, that one lasted, if I'm... Um, I'm going to go ahead and say this, but, good, but if anybody checks me and it's wrong, I'm going to deny I ever said it. Um, I'm not sure it was the Ebionites, but one of the Ebionites, or, or um, it's not Marcionism, is still alive today in the Coptic church in Egypt. 
The, have you heard of the, that, the Coptics, C-O-P? And some of them, what's it been, two or three years ago, were martyred um, in Tunisia. Um, but they are, if, if that's the right heresy, they're, they're kind of fouled up as far as um, the humanity of Jesus. It was like God came on Jesus and made him Messiah, but he was not fully divine. Okay? Um, so there's a case of literally 1,800 years or so. It's hung around. Um, to a lot of degree, in, in, in maybe they've evolved, <clears throat> but they're still recognizable. A lot of these heresies never fully went away um, because it's like Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. And the devil's really only got four or five really crummy ideas, and he just dresses them up in a different costume, trots them out to a new generation, and they get bug-eyed thinking that nobody's ever thought of this before, and this is great. And so he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, these same kinds of doctrines um, <clears throat> crop back up. It wasn't fully settled, published, you know, the list, and no one, well, I shouldn't say no one questioned it, but the debate was, for all intents and purposes, over. It was not until 367. Now, by 150, other than, oddly, they, there was no fighting over 1 John, but 2 and 3 John there was. Hebrews... Um, there was some argument over that. There was argument over, um, Jude. yeah, Jude, and was it first, first or second Peter? Second Peter. Um, you know, you had a couple for a while. Oddly, they also questioned, and this was earlier, but they questioned John's gospel. Um, they didn't have any questions over Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but they kind of questioned. Uh, John and some of these, it's too hard to find out what the down in the weeds reasons um, were. But at any rate, um, you still had. If you ever get today, um, if you have a Catholic access to a Catholic Bible, you'll have sometimes in the in the center between the Old and the New Testament, you'll have what are called the apocryphal books, and there's you know. First, second, Esdras, and the Gospel of Peter, and Bell and the Dragon, and you know, there's just there were some New Testament ones, there were some Old Testament ones. There was much, there was not hardly any issue over the Old Testament. By the time of Jesus' presence on earth, that was settled. He quoted from all of the major categories, the wisdom literature, the history, and so forth. So there was never much over that. Um, but, you know, you have all these New Testaments. So, again, they settled on the fundamental uh, requirement, apostolic authority or authority, authorship of someone very closely associated with one of the apostles. That was the only way it got in. But that's a long time to, you know, wonder should this book be in, even down until... 
well, I don't know when, it'd been the 1520s, Martin Luther still referred to James because Martin Luther was rejecting Catholicism and came out of a works salvation, earning merit kind of a salvation. He didn't like James. Yeah. And he called it a right strawy epistle. <laughs> Hard to swallow. Um, because faith without works is dead. And he was so you know, rebelling against all of the merit idea of salvation. You say the prayers, you make a pilgrimage to Rome, you go to certain relics, you go to, you know, all that stuff. Um, James was hard for him to swallow. But the interesting thing is, in the right way, he still felt free to criticize it. That's how late still some of the questioning of epistles in books of the New Testament went. So there, there's another case where we think, you know, as soon as Jesus ascended up off of Bethany, you know, the hill, you know, there was a brand new Gideon New Testament there with all the books. No, it was just bickering back and forth, quoting that one. Well, I don't, you know, I don't receive that as an apostle. I don't listen to, you know. It was wild. Um, so, anything else on this, at least this 150 years worth of uh, first, kind of first wave of heresies that came along? Um, a greater one is coming along in um, not too distant future. Um, you know, by next lesson, that would probably be maybe the the most dangerous one that uh, nearly you know tore things up. <clears throat> but anything else? Then, if there's nothing else on heresies, I we got enough. I can at least start a bit on persecutions. Or you might feel you're being persecuted because I'm not letting you out. Um, <clears throat> persecution was constant, but not universal. Now, much of the early persecution, of course, came from the Jews. It was not the Romans that killed the first martyr, Stephen. It was the Jews. Um, and Paul really had more trouble with the Jews, all told, than he ever did with the Romans. He was a Roman citizen, so you know he had some... Um, credentials there. But so there was much um, opposition from Judaism and, of course, from pagan philosophers and like Paul encountered in Athens. Um, it wasn't until probably Nero, which um, 60 AD, it's likely. You know, tradition can't always be trusted, but there's some tradition that seems more solid that uh, Peter and Paul likely were martyred under uh, Nero. Now, um, Nero was completely nuts. Um, <clears throat> you know, he married, a, he married a boy, he married his horse... Killed his mom. I think he killed his sister too, didn't he? I mean, he was, you know, equal opportunity. 
Oh yeah, he was just, he was insane. You know, people had to cut his mic off. Um, anyway. <laughs> but he was, so he, here's what he did, at least recorded that the practices he had. There's a case where it's probably very likely that he's the one that set Rome on fire, but of course he blamed the Christians for it, and they were a perfect foil for him. And so some of the things he did to the Christians were, one, he would, uh, they would sow, sow them, S-E-W, sow them into or cover them with skins of wild animals and then set hunting dogs on them in the arenas and, you know, tear them to bits. Um, they would tie, if you ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs, don't. <laughs> um, boy. Um, but anyway, um, they, would, they would take um, Christians, women, children, men, didn't matter, and they would, you know, tie them like to the leg or something of a wild-eyed bull and just, you know, drive it crazy so it would just run and drag them, drag them to death. Um, the most grisly thing um, that's documented that he did would, he would uh, put Christians on poles, light them on fire, and they provided lighting for his garden parties. And people could stroll among the gardens lit by burning bodies of Christians. A nice guy. Um, now, after he was off the scene, that would have been a more localized kind of in, in, in Rome and so forth. There were a couple of... Did, yeah. yeah. Uh, what do you think of the persecution like the stoning of Stephen? You know, the great persecution arise, all the, all the, everybody scattered except for the apostles. Yeah. I think most of it seemed to be um, still Jewish because here's the one of the things that that um, I think kind of helps me understand why Christians were I think initially looked at dismissively and then they were looked at as kind of a puzzlement because um, I think I mentioned it a week or so ago the Jews were so so obnoxious, okay, that even Rome acquiesced to legalizing Judaism and exempting them from having to participate in emperor worship. So they just gave them a loophole. Well, for a good long time, at least till about the end of the Apostolic Age, Christianity was never considered to be a standalone religion. It was, a, it was just a sect within Judaism. So the legal protection that Judaism had kind of, you know, just casually extended to the Christians as long as it seemed they were just of that strange bunch and, you know, let them alone. Um, but once both the Christians and the Jews, especially the Jews, made it just abundantly clear. These, we don't have any more to do with these Christians than you do. Uh, they are not of us. Then is when that protection, as it were, fell away. And then you have, you have a lot of regional 
um, kinds of persecutions, way, way more of that than you ever did um, Mediterranean basin-wide. But Nero's would have been sort of close, but that would have been the northern part of the Mediterranean. Then you get in about um, 250, there's... Um, Now I can't remember his name. Um, it's not the Diocletian. Um, um, he wasn't a nice guy. Um, and his name starts with a D. So anyway, but about 250, and that was a, a pretty much Mediterranean-wide. And there were a number of early church fathers who today, by the Catholic Church, are looked upon and called saints. Um, a famous one was Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage in North Africa. Christianity had a strong footing in all of Northern Africa. And one thing we're not even mentioning, because we're not quite there yet, but Christianity put its roots down, it spread all over the place in the Mediterranean basin, all through North Africa, Egypt, up through Syria, and then all into and spreading north into southern Europe, clear out to Britain, to Spain. Christianity was really, uh, really spreading. And in 622 AD, Muhammad was born. And he tried his teachings that Jesus was a great prophet, Abraham was a great prophet, we were all descended from Abraham. Um, but I have, you know, Muhammad is the final prophet. He approached the Christians in general and the Jewish community that, hey, we're all on the same page here. And they said, no, we're not. And so um, he became terribly embittered against Christians and Jews. I personally think he was demon-possessed. The experience he, uh, that he testified to, he would go into these caves and he would have these visions and he'd rant and rave and foam at the mouth and carry on and have all... And he also liked 14-year-old girls or younger. Um, and he, he was just... And he was vicious so that once he took over the Arabian Peninsula, then he went out after Jews. They were a small group, but Christians especially. And within about 100 years of him starting by 750 or so, um, you had just slaughter among Christians at the hands of Muslims. And they, the saying is um, uh, Christianity spread by its missionaries um, and persuasion. Islam spread at the point of sword. Um, and so today, um, some huge church father names that were in North Africa. North Africa is, there's, there's not a hint of Christianity there unless they're underground or something. Um, all through Palestine. They fooled around for about 500 years and then they finally decided we need to try to get some of the land back. So that's when they had the Crusades, which never worked. Um, but so Amer uh, Christianity really got buffeted uh, and really always has when you look at it. Um, now, where in the world was I at? Maybe time to quit. 
Um, we've got 10 minutes before the kids are let loose to, you know, take the sheetrock off the walls. No parents around. Um, maybe just quickly then just mention this, whatever this 250, I can't remember his name, saved my life. Uh, Decius, I think. Then Diocletian came along, and he had a short but probably the most vicious persecution that was kind of empire-wide. And that was in, well, he died in 303. So it was just a couple of years. In the first couple years of the 4th century, the 300s, and then 303, um, it concluded. But that was considered, looking back, the most um, you know, far-reaching um, and intense persecution of the churches, a Christian church, by the Roman um, emperors. Um, let me tell you one f- really quick thing that came out of the second, not Nero, but this uh, Decius, I believe it was, um, that will come to, f- to bear centuries down the road. With that great persecution in about 250, three kinds of Christians came out of that. Okay? There were people who were martyrs, and there were a lot of them. Second, and let me just throw this in, there grew up a what's called veneration of martyrs. Someone who was martyred was considered, you know, just saintly. Thus, so many of them are saints today, or classified as saints. Um, but that means they resisted unto death. They would not worship the emperor. They would not worship the Roman gods. And so they suffered death. The guy I mentioned earlier, Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage, was martyred in that big persecution. There was a second group that came out. They were called confessors. Confessors were people who resisted and, for whatever reason, were not put to death. Now, some of them were exiled. Some of them had their businesses taken away, their houses burned down, stuff like that. Um, But they weren't killed. So they were called, but they still passed the test. Okay, They were called confessors. Then there was a third group. And then, of course, there's a lot of people that might have just escaped the whole thing. I don't know. But there were a number of group, a number of other people. And some think, I don't know where you even get this, but some historians think it was as high as three is 75%. They were called the lapsed. The lapsed. L-A-P-S-E-D. They were those who faced with maybe the execution of their children and their wife or some, you know, right in front of them, or torment, torture of, of all kinds of ways, and they would cave, and sometimes even at the point of literal physical being comatose. You know what I mean? They had, they had no, hardly any conscience, consciousness left to resist with. And they would make, you know, put the pinch of incense into the fire, the censer, that is Caesar's Lord. Okay. Well, the big question, and it was a huge one, what, what do you do with the lapsed? Persecution's over. Diocletian died. 
and they've turned right around and decided that Christianity is now legal. It didn't make it the state religion, but it's legalized along with all the other gods. So, I mean, it was like sunshine on everybody. What do you do with the people? Now, we, we get to have church again. Okay? Well, you guys can decide who, but we gather here, and three quarters of you are kind of <laughs> sheepish. A um, couple of wives are sitting here, widows now because their husbands stood the test, and there's some others sitting here who lapsed. What do you do? They're seeking readmission to the church. They're seeking forgiveness. Oh, yes, listen, that was a ruckus. Um, Cyprian, for instance, said, offer forgiveness to them. Okay? Now, Tertullian, who was one of the greatest um, apologists for Christianity, and that would have been very near the end of his life, he said, absolutely not. It's the unpardonable sin to deny deny God and worship the emperor, there is no forgiveness. Um, where in the world they got those notions, I, I don't know. Um, but it was a terrible division for a long time of what do you do with these people. Well, the, the forgive them group, there was the group who said, no forgiveness, they're out, that's it. Um, the other group you know, said, well, there's forgiveness, but then that group had two different opinions. And so they kind of had a subdivision. One was that you get one shot. <laughs> You're forgiven once. That's it. Others said, Jesus said 70 times 7, so, you know, you forgive them and restore them if they're truly pen, uh, repent. Well, at the time, Cyprian wasn't dead yet. He hadn't been martyred yet, Okay. So they turned to Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage, for help in answering this question. What do we do with the lapsed? He said, okay, kind of a compromise. There is forgiveness, but, and this was first at least came to the surface, they must do penance, okay? And the penance is based on how bad their sin was. Meaning, if they weren't half conscious and three quarters of their blood gone and they worshiped the emperor, then you knew what you were doing. That's a worse sin than the guy that was half unconscious that said, okay, uh, Caesar's the Lord. Um, so he tried to come up with a whole balancing system for how you earn your way back into the church by doing penance, doing, giving alms, you know, going to the soup kitchen, a whole bunch of stuff, okay? <clears throat> well, um, that started the notion of penance, which we still have today in the Catholic Church. Um, forgive me, Father, for I've sinned in the confessional. Okay, you got to do, say, so many Hail Marys, so many Our Fathers, and so that idea that you, you have to earn off what you did started clear back there with a very real problem, but a dumb solution. I mean, I don't know what, I don't know what happened to him. Paul said, I persecuted the church. 
He not only didn't cave, he ran the persecution. But he said, God had mercy on me, forgave me. Where they got that, I have no idea. Um, but anyway, um, out of that came then two things. The one thing I got to tell you real quick, and I got two minutes. First, a lot of the people in North Africa specifically, where some of the persecution was very severe, they got the notion that um, confessors, um, you could pray to God through a martyr and get sins forgiven. But confessors, those are the guys that were stood the test but weren't killed. The confessors, somehow because of going through that fiery test, they now had the power to forgive sins. Now that's pure wackiness. But Cyprian, who was an otherwise decent guy, I guess, um, yeah, they, they thought you could forgive sins. Well, to Cyprian's credit, he stopped that. He said, well, no, that doesn't really follow. But the confessors do have merit that they can share with you. Now that spawned the notion of two things. Praying to the saints um, and that they somehow can minister to us. And it spawned the notion which later, well, it would have been 1,300 years or 1,400 years later, became what's called the treasury of merit. And the treasury of merit, to, to simplify it and then let you out of here, is um, we'll, we'll use Lori, because Lori... Matheny worked in the office and was absolutely the best employee, so we'll make a good person. We'll make her a saint, okay? Well, Lori, and I'm just picking a figure out of the air, but it takes 500 points of merit to get into heaven. Lori had 1,000. She's a confessor. She stood the test, didn't cave, and she's got 1,000 points. Well, she only needed 500 to get in. What's, what do they do with the extra 500? Why, it goes into a bank account called the Treasury of Merit. And the only signatory to that account is the Pope. So let's say, and I think we could all agree, you know, we could all agree here um, on this. Um, you got Bob Steele back here. He's only got about 150 points. And we can all, we, all of us can understand perfectly, you know, we, we realize what, how that could be. The poor guy is 350 short. Well, this treasury of merit has just got zillions of points in it because of all the Lori Matheny's, and even Jesus contributed to the treasury of merit. So, I mean, we're talking a hedge fund account, okay? So, Bob just has to, you better give some money because that usually goes along with it. Pray to the saints and see if you can get the 350 points you're short transferred to your account. And that's what the treasury of merit, and that's a simple um, explanation of it. But that's what St. Martin Luther just 
chomping, you know, grinding these teeth down to the gums, was they were selling those points, really, for an offering, went into the coffer, a coin doth ring, another soul from purgatory doth spring. So grandma's writhing in the flames down there, and so we're trying to build St. Peter's Basilica, and so you know, I'm going to put some bitcoins in here, and I get credit. Grandma gets out of purgatory and finally makes it to heaven. Everything's good. When we were in Germany at Wittenberg in Luther's house and school, they had a 1500s um, trunk cask with um, a metal kind of a you know half moon that you dropped your coin in, big lock on it, and that was one of those indulgences, um, strong boxes that you put your money into. Amazing. Anyway, we got to quit. Um, we'll probably, we'll look at a couple more um, heresies next week, which led to some councils and some big decisions, and um, keep going as long as we can. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for what you superintended down through the centuries. And there isn't any way in the world that we would even know about Jesus, <clears throat> have a Bible, know anything, but that you kept the truth alive. We thank you that we're the recipients of it today. Go with us now, we pray. Keep our hearts and minds in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.